Good morning, Calvary Chapel. Uh, let's go to John chapter 14, and I'll just start reading in verse 15, um, and I'll be reading through the end of the chapter. We've got a lot to study this morning. John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus says, If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. A little while longer, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. At that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said I am going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, so I do. Arise, let us go from here. Jesus, we come to you... Uh, knowing that we need help and, and rejoicing that you have sent us a helper. Um, we know that we are we are in need of your, of your grace, of your help, of your mercy, uh, but you have not left us orphans. So we pray that we would be able to receive now from your word the good things you have for your church so that your church can grow and, and become more like its founder, its leader, its chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. Uh, we look to you that we might resemble you. And we ask again for the help of your Holy Spirit that you have sent. Amen. Uh, so in John chapter 14 and John 16, which is just right around the next corner, uh, these are really the essential passages about the Holy Spirit. Uh, and since we're coming into a section that discusses the Holy Spirit uh, and his work so thoroughly, um, I thought it would be a good idea to introduce to you uh, introduce you to this main character before we get started. With most characters in the Bible, you know, you can assume some understanding uh, of that, that person just by reading about their life. Where are they born? Who, they, who are their parents? What they, did they do? How did they die? And of course, none of those things work when you're talking about the character who is the Holy Spirit. Uh, and assumptions, of course, can be dangerous. And he, the Holy Spirit may very well be the most misunderstood character in all of Scripture, though I don't know how you would measure that exactly. 
Jesus is going to speak about the Holy Spirit. And like I said, these are essential passages in understanding him. But they do not give a complete understanding of who he is. Just like John 3.16 is a key verse, a, a, and it gives valued information, but not comprehensive information about the Father or the Son. So as the Bible is not organized according to topic, we have to glean from a number of different passages in order to get the whole picture of any one, one topic. And since the Holy Spirit can be so misunderstood, we should give him a bit of introduction before we start. So, you ready? Here we go. Write this down. Remember it. Don't forget it. The Holy Spirit is God. There's your introduction. Uh, now, of course, that opens up a the proverbial can of worms rather wide because you don't have to be an especially astute reader of Scripture to realize that the Scripture makes it crystal clear that there is one God and one God alone. In the Old Testament, you have verses like Isaiah 44, verse 8, where God himself says, Is there a God beside me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. And in the New Testament, Paul writes in 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, he says, There is one God. Um, that's pretty clear. All of those words mean exactly what you think they mean. There is one God. And of course, we've already complicated things in the Gospel of John with John chapter 1, which identifies the Word as both of God and God himself. The unity of God, the unity of God the Father and God the Son, is something we've touched on several times in the Gospel of John. You can go back and listen to the messages on John chapter 1 to get more of that. And it's come up as recently as last week, when Jesus says, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So I won't go into that relationship further right now, but now we have this third character, the Spirit of Truth, mentioned to us in John chapter 17. The Holy Spirit, the Helper, verse 26. Um, and, and so who is he? And, and the questions come up now, and the most basic might be, what is it, which immediately must be rephrased as, who is he? Who is the Holy Spirit? Basic Holy Spirit Theology 101, right after you get that he is God, or maybe even before you say that he is God, you say that he is he. The Holy Spirit is a person, he not it. Now, the Holy Spirit is not the force from Star Wars or a metaphor or something like that. We read in Scripture that the Holy Spirit teaches and speaks like a person would. And we're also told that the Holy Spirit can be grieved. That's a personal thing. The Holy Spirit literally takes sin personally because he is a person. Now, gravity is not offended by helium balloons that make a mockery of its laws. Uh, that's not the way it works, right? The Holy Spirit is a person and is personally grieved by offenses. But the Holy Spirit is far more than a created being or an angelic person or entity, as was said before, the Holy Spirit is God of very God. But even before we get to that fully, we have to acknowledge that the Holy Spirit is not the Father, and the Holy Spirit is not the Son. In the same way that Jesus can say, I and the Father are one, while not indicating, I am my own Father, we can read the Holy Spirit and know that we're talking about God at the same time as we are not talking about Jesus or God the Father. There is a distinction 
and a perfect unity. And it's beautiful and will always better be, uh, it'll, it will be better worshipped around and rejoiced in rather than fully analyzed and understood, though we try. We love it, but we confess we don't get it. Now, one of the clearest places we see this mystery of the triune God is at the baptism of Jesus Christ, Matthew 3.16. We've mentioned this before in the Gospel of John. I'm saying it again because the Trinity is important. Matthew 3.16, it says, When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. You've got three people there, God, God, and God. And they're all God. Uh, another verse in Acts 10, verse 38, Peter speaks to Cornelius, the centurion, and he says that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. We see a separation in person and a unity in purpose. Now let's look at some examples of the Holy Spirit or sorry, of scriptures referring to the Holy Spirit as God himself, because there will always be cults and heresies that attack the divinity or the humanity of Jesus, and there are always going to be heresies and cults that attack the divinity and the personhood of the Holy Spirit. So this is why we spend time on this topic and defend these issues. In Acts chapter 5, um, it tells the story of Ananias and Sapphira, lying about selling their property and giving the proceeds to the church. They wanted it to look like they had given everything, but in, only, in reality they had only given a part. So Peter says that they lied to the Holy Spirit. And then a verse later he clarifies by saying that they lied to God. Holy Spirit is God. 1 Corinthians 6 tells us we are temples of the Holy Spirit. Temples aren't for the wind. Temples aren't for impersonal forces. Temples aren't just for decorations. Temples are places for God. Throughout the book of Acts, we see that the church was listening to and following orders from the Holy Spirit, which they, who they, whom they acknowledged as God himself. They, they acknowledged the, the orders from the Holy Spirit as God's commands. We also see that the Spirit, while distinct from the Father and Son, as seen in Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius and Matthew 3 with the baptism, the Holy Spirit possesses all the attributes of God. He is creator. In Genesis 1.1, it says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Holy Spirit is eternal. In Hebrews 9.14, it says, How much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your consciences from dead works to serve the living God. That's Acts 9, or sorry, Hebrews 9.14. The Holy Spirit, like the other members of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, who is God himself, is omnipresent. Psalm 139, verse 7 beautifully expresses this. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. These are truths that are too big for our minds, but not too big to be worshipped around. 
Indeed, if something is to be worthy of worship, bigness is essential. But because we are given the task of understanding as best we can, I think the best way to understand these mysteries is with the words of 4th century theologian and pastor Athanasius. Uh, he wrote what is called the Athanasian Creed. Um, he also wrote a great book, it's probably my favorite uh, work of the Church Fathers that I've read, I think, which is called On the Incarnation. It's not very long, uh, I recommend it highly. Um, but Athanasian, the Athanasian Creed uh, includes this line, he says, We worship one God in Trinity, and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the essence. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Ghost. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost is all one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. That is who we're talking about. Next, I want you to notice something about what, about where we come into this conversation where Jesus brings up this heavy topic, this complicated topic of the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 14, Jesus had just said, He who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. And last week I pointed out that the only way this works at all is with the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And that word empowering is one that is generally attached to the study of the Holy Spirit. In the passage we read in from Acts, where Peter says that God anointed Jesus Christ with the Holy Spirit and power. It's almost like his, the Holy Spirit's last name, Mr. Holy Spirit Power. That's not true. Don't call him that. Um, the Holy Spirit gives you the power of God to obey to live godly in Christ Jesus, as Titus 2 says, to be witnesses for Jesus, as Jesus himself says in Acts chapter 1. In fact, when Jesus speaks of the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts, it's almost like the idea of power and the Holy Spirit are inseparable. In Acts chapter 1 verse 8 it says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The Holy Spirit brings power. And if we were to do a, a full study, a further study on the Holy Spirit's ministry, we would get into the gifts of the Spirit, and there are powerful gifts there. Um, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is a powerful ministry. In, in Luke chapter 1, verse 35, when the angel speaks to Mary, he almost uses power, like I mentioned before, he almost uses power as a name for the Holy Spirit. Listen to this, Luke 1.35, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. When Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica, he says, For our gospel did not come to you in words only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. These ideas are coupled. Now, because the ministry of the Holy Spirit is so powerful, the more gentle ministries that he attends to can often be neglected. This is true even when you talk about the gifts. You read about the gifts of the Holy Spirit in, in 1 Corinthians 12 or Romans 12, and, and you talk about the gifts, and, and usually those discussions end up, you know, spending a lot of time on questions about healings and prophecy and miracles and tongues, and no one is waiting in line with questions about the gift of mercy, because that sounds boring. <laughs> But the Holy Spirit, who is divinely powerful and gives you power to do works greater than those that Jesus did on earth, is 
is still a still small voice and has a ministry that is kind and gentle. That's really more of the tone that is struck in the upper room discourse in John chapter 14. Now we are going to actually study verses in John 14. But if you glance back at verse 1 of chapter 14, Jesus says, Let not your hearts, your heart be troubled. The disciples are troubled. They're afraid. They're nervous. They're sad. And Jesus is bringing them comfort. Jesus, who is the God of all comfort, according to 2 Corinthians 1, is bringing comfort. In verse 12, he said, Most assuredly, because he is giving them assurance, and they need it. And in these verses, 15 through 18, and then in verses 25 and 26, the Holy Spirit is called a helper. Or in other translations, uh, maybe more accurately, a comforter, the comforter. And one who cares for orphans. He's called a teacher who gently teaches. One who brings peace. Not just any peace, but the peace of Jesus. Not just a worldly peace, but a heavenly peace. In verse 27, after reminding them again that the Holy Spirit is coming, Jesus repeats himself by saying, Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. In chapter 16, when Jesus revisits this topic of the Holy Spirit in the same conversation in the upper room, he tells them again, Sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, the Comforter, will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. So I want to highlight this for you, and, and when you read John 14 and see the promise of the Holy Spirit, which is, who is yours to receive, the promise is yours to receive, realize that God is sending you a comforter, one who brings peace, one who is sent to help, one who tends to troubled hearts and cares for orphaned spirits. Let's walk through this passage. In verse 15, Jesus says, If you love me, keep my commandments. Or perhaps in your Bibles it might say, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then in verse 16, he says, And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, and he, that he may abide with you forever. You need these verses together. You need... Um, you can't isolate verse 15 and think that your theology is going to be screwed on tight. If you take verse 15 by itself, you can get a weird kind of manipulative legalism. You need all the ingredients. Jesus describes what love from us to him looks like. It looks like obedience, and he's going to revisit that in verse 20, verse 21. Okay, he's going to double down on this, saying that obedience, love looks like obedience. Keeping the commandments is important. But then he describes what love from him to us looks like. Sending the comforter, the helper, the unending, everlasting togetherness of abiding. It's important that we keep both of these together. And I think Jesus knew it would be important because he, he uh, has this pattern here where he mentions love and commandments and then the Holy Spirit and then love and commandments and then the Holy Spirit again. Um, it's important that we have all of this together because then the obedience isn't only prescriptive, but descriptive. Yes, the command is there, keep my commandments. And that's still what the church preaches. Keep his commandments. The new commandment he gives to you, love. Love one another. That's still the commandment that we're trying to keep. But that's, and that's essentially been the message throughout scripture. Unfortunately, the, the message, keep the commandments, 
when isolated or seen as the only message of Scripture, only serves to highlight man's failure in his ability to keep the commandments. Have you read the Old Testament? Have you read the New Testament? Have you read church history? If that's all there is to it, then it's, a, it's, a, it's an unbalanced equation. The question is definitely not, should we keep the commandments? We believe we should. The question has always been, how do we keep the commandments? And Jesus says, I'm sending help. There's comfort on the way. There's the presence of God that will never leave you or forsake you. That's how. That is how you keep the commandment of God to love one another, love neighbors, love enemies. You can look at verses uh, 21 through 44, or sorry, 24, 21 through 24 for a helpful explanation on this. It says, he, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And then Judas, not Iscariot, which is a good new last name that this guy probably had for the rest of his life. Judas, not Iscariot, please let's be clear on that. Okay, Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Good question. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. This dwelling of God with man, this Emmanuel ministry that Jesus began, will be continued and is continued today by the Holy Spirit. And this togetherness that we are offered shows up in, in love. It's not here, it's not um, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the dwelling with us, the abiding of God with man is not a, a kind of um, slave and master relationship where he's here just pointing out all the things that you do wrong or something. He's here in love with you. He's here showing you what love is. It's a tender, caring relationship where our obedience is not the work only of a slave, but of a beloved child. This doesn't make obedience any less important. Please hear me on this. Paul calls himself a slave. It's usually softened to bond servant. But let me tell you, it's a kind of a slave. But that's not a total picture of Paul's theology, is it? Because Paul, the bond servant of Christ, also writes in Romans 8.15, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage, again, to fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. This is also the direction Jesus takes us in John 14. In verse 18, um, uh, but in order to get there, we have to get through 16 and 17 first, so let's back up a little bit. It's important that this topic of the Holy Spirit is introduced by this concept of love. This is how the discussion is framed. The Spirit of God, the one who raises the dead and hovers over the waters of creation, is also the one who gives help to your loveless heart. Romans 5.5, 5, probably one of my favorite verses, it says that the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Help is on the way. Help is here. Now, something interesting about what Jesus says here in verse 16. He says, another helper or another comforter. There are two words for another in Greek. Another of a different kind or another of the same kind. 
um, Jesus is not saying that he will send a different helper, that is a kind of helper who is other than himself, other than Jesus, but rather he's sending a helper who is the same as himself. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is the same as Jesus. While distinct persons, they are the same God with the same goal and even the same methods. The Spirit of God comforts the same way Jesus comforts, helps the same way Jesus helps, loves the same way Jesus loves. Now in verse, thir- in verse 17, it says, The Spirit of truth, whom, you, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The helper is the spirit of truth who the world cannot receive. Why? Because the world does not believe. Throughout the book of Acts, this is the order of conversion. Believe and receive. Believe and receive. This is the appeal given by the apostles. Believe, be baptized, receive the Holy Spirit. That's always the way it goes. It has been evident throughout the ministry of Jesus that the world he encounters is an unbelieving world. The world was in darkness. Until the world received faith, it could not receive the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a very kind of interesting phrase here that's very important theologically. Jesus says the Spirit dwells with you and will be in you. We'll talk more about this when we get to chapter 16, but for now, just realize that the disciples do not have a full experience of the Holy Spirit. They do not have the closeness with God that they would have after the resurrection. The Holy Spirit was with them, leading, guiding, but the Holy Spirit had not taken up permanent residence in their heart. What we call the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that a believer has was not theirs yet. It would not be theirs until after the resurrection, when Jesus encounters them again, again in an upper room, and breathes on them and says, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, in verse 18, he says, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Now, this is fulfilled in part by Jesus coming to them after the resurrection. Uh, He called his disciples little children. And as such, he is a father figure to them. But Jesus will go away again. He will ascend into heaven, and the disciples will watch him go. But before he does, he says, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is true because... Of the, because the ministry of the Holy Spirit is in full effect. The Helper, the Comforter, is so united with the Father and the Son that just as it is true, according to verse 9, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, it's also true that if the Spirit is with you, so is the Son. Also, so you see the unity between God the Father and God the Spirit, we call the first member of the Trinity Father, but recognize, usually around Christmas time, that the Son is also a Father to us. His name is Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And here we see that the Spirit also has a ministry of adoption. He is the one that allows us to cry out, Abba, Father. And it is His ministry to not leave us orphans. He has a parental kind of ministry. Again, the powerful ministry of the Spirit is a ministry of tender love and care. And the disciples at this moment, and perhaps the disciples at this moment, need to hear that. Perhaps we need to hear that. Jesus is aware of the bad news. And he's telling them, it's not as bad as you think, because in the end I win. And we need to hear that too. In verse 19 he says, A little while longer and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live, you will live also. 
And that's pretty cool. Remember, in all this mysterious talk about the Trinity and the Father and the Son and the Spirit and the Son and this tri-unity that we just don't even get close to understanding, Jesus is also saying that we will be mysteriously united with him in a similar but distinct kind of unity, a similar mystery. If he lives, we live. Paul says to live is Christ. Our lives are wrapped up so closely in his own that as long as, our ever, as the everlasting Christ is who he is, then we have life. Now, I believe Jesus is speaking specifically about his resurrection, the resurrection life that is also ours, because he says in verse 20, At that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. At that day. Again, the mystery of union with God. But it, it comes down to that day. What day? The, the, the day the disciples see the power of God over death itself, and that they see that their Lord and Master has victory even over the grave. That day. That would be a moment in history that the disciples would all remember. A few of them would record, and the reading of that moment, when the resurrected Jesus meets the disciples, that, that moment is still changing lives 2,000 years later as we, as, when we read it. But we don't get the evident... Um, you know, we, we don't get... Uh, excuse me. Uh, we don't get that upper room moment when the physical Jesus, you know, walks through the wall and speaks to us. So, but... Be, even though we don't get that moment, we still stay, take comfort like the disciples did because we get the promise of verse 21. In verse 21, he says, He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Christ will reveal himself to you as you walk with him in his commandments. And he has given his Holy Spirit to you to assist you, to aid you, to enable you to walk in those commandments. And, and then just read, um, verse, skip down to verse 25. We read this, this passage about Judas. Look at verse 25 and read through the end of the chapter. It says, These things I've spoken to you while being present with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said I am going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it comes, that when it co does come to pass, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, so I do. Arise, let us go from here. Now, <laughs> um, it's kind of funny, because it says, Arise, let us go from here, and then he keeps on talking for three more chapters. Um, but apparently these 12 guys were, it just took a lot for them to get on their shoes and get out the door and everything. So they're getting ready to leave and go to the Mount of Olives. Um, but Jesus is saying some amazing things here. He's, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of power has a ministry to you. And Jesus is saying, you should rejoice in this. I'm going and I'm going to send you the Spirit. I'm going to prepare a place for you and you should rejoice because my Father, who I'm going to introduce you to, first, first person, he's greater than I. Now, this, this, there's this powerful ministry that's coming to do what? And, well, it's to help you remember what Jesus says, 
because that's where the power actually is. It's in the words of Jesus Christ. And Jesus, in speaking of the coming of the Holy Spirit, the powerful Holy Spirit, says, peace I leave with you. And in this paradoxical, upside-down world of the gospel, this makes sense. There is power in peace. Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. And Jesus says, my peace I leave with you. And saying the Holy Spirit is being sent to you, he's really saying just about the same thing. And this peace, he says, it's not the peace that the world gives. Now, there's always counterfeits. There's always imitations. But true peace comes from the God of peace every time. Peace, or shalom in Hebrew, was just a common greeting at the time. But if Jesus had just said shalom, it, you know, just said, oh, peace, I leave you, it wouldn't have had that much significance. So he's clarifying, I'm not just saying hi. I'm leaving you shalom, but not an empty, polite nothing. I mean real peace. Not the world's kind of, hi, bye, uh, just have a good day, peace. He says, no, I mean I'm leaving you real peace. And in addition to this peace, he promises a real joy. He says, if you loved me, you would rejoice because I said I am going to the Father. Now, Romans 14, 17 says that the kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And Jesus, in saying, you would have had joy if you understood. Remember, they don't have the Holy Spirit yet but they would be able to rejoice very soon. Now, a lot of this talk about the Holy Spirit is stuff that you're going to understand more. We're, we're going to try and study this more when we get to chapter 16. But I want you to notice the direction the conversation is going and where it's come from. The disciples are troubled. They are confused. They are anxious and worried. You may not be any of those things right now, but just give it some time. You will be. This is what life is made of. You will find yourself in the place similar to the place these men are in, confused and afraid. Because we also have doubts. We also experience loneliness and fear. And Jesus says twice in this chapter, let not your heart be troubled. And he does so because he knows the condition and the tendencies of our hearts. So I want you to notice how Jesus speaks to people with troubled hearts and what he has to say to these people, what he says to you. He says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Believe in me. And then when asked what he's, where he's going, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Come to me. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. Come to me. And then he tells them, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He says, look to me. And then to bring the whole trinity in the picture, he says, and the Father is sending a comforter, the helper, of the same kind as me. And he says to those feeling abandoned, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. And just in case the disciples had, perhaps, and perhaps you, are still scratching their heads about this kind of triunity, Jesus says in verse 20, At that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Now this is going to lead into chapter 15 perfectly, where the message is, Abide in me. This is what Jesus says to broken hearts. This is what Jesus says to confused people, to anxious people, to hurting people. He says, Believe in me. Come to me. Look to me. Abide in me. This is the comfort and the peace that Jesus gives. Now the Holy Spirit, we'll see this in chapter 16, His primary ministry is to point people to Jesus. 
The Holy Spirit, the gift of God, the Comforter, is the one who assists your heart, who, who um, resurrects your heart, so that you can believe in Jesus, come to Jesus, look to Jesus, abide in Jesus. The comfort, the peace that Jesus gives is nothing less than His presence through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. This is yours. In this chapter about comfort, about troubled hearts, we find ourselves in a tension between the beginning and end of the gospel. The beginning of John's gospel includes the profound truth, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. God has come to us. At the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus speaks the words, I am with you always. And now in the thematic center between these two ideas, Jesus says, I'm here. And I'm going. And when I go, I'm still with you. I'll still be with you. This is true because of the glorious ministry of the Holy Spirit. Let us never discount the ministry of this misunderstood member of the Godhead. If we were studying 1 Corinthians 12 or Romans 12, we'd be talking about the gifts and the manifestations of the Holy Spirit, and when we speak of Him, we should never forget that the uh, a primary ministry of God, of God the Spirit, is simply to bring closeness between us and our Father, to bring Emmanuel into the reality of our hearts. Let us thank Him for this ministry and ask Him to continue to fulfill it. Let's pray. God, I ask your blessing on Calvary Chapel of the Sierra. I ask a blessing on our church. I ask a blessing on every heart. And when I, when I say blessing, I mean the blessing. Jesus, I ask for you to send your Holy Spirit, God of all comfort, minister your presence to our hearts. You know we love your presence most of all. God, we rejoice in the peace that you have given us. We pray for diligence in our own hearts to continue to walk in it. Bless us for your glory and your name. Amen.